If you will turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, we're going to look at one verse today, verse 33. This happens to be my life's verse. A few weeks earlier in this year, Di and I had the privilege of taking a weekend off and going down to Charleston. And one evening, it was a beautiful evening, we were walking on the beach. And as we're walking on the beach, she sees something glistering in the sand in front of her, and she was curious, and she goes over and picks it up, and it's a beautiful bottle. And as she's holding the bottle, she starts rubbing the sand off of it, and behold, a genie jumps out of that bottle. (laughs) And the genie says to her, you have one wish. What would that be? And Diane said, I've always wanted to go to the Holy Lands, but to get there, you have to fly. I don't mind flying, but going through security, going through customs, changing planes is just a headache. I wish there was a road from here in South Carolina to go to Jerusalem. The genie looked at her and said, ma'am, do you understand what you're wishing for? To do that, you would have to have a bridge across the Atlantic Ocean. It would be A marvel, an engineering and architectural marvel of the world. Quite honestly, it's almost an impossibility to do that. Is there another wish you have? She thought for a moment and she said, You know, I love my husband dearly, but I wish that at least once in his life he could admit he was wrong. (laughs) The genie responded, Do you want that to be a two-lane or a four-lane road? (laughs) Matthew 6.33 is my life's verse, and it talks about putting God first in your life, and it's my life's verse. And I want to tell you how that became my life's verse, and then I want to take time to to dissect it because it's packed with marvelous truths that we need to hear. When I was 18 or 19 years of age, I was in my first year of college. And quite honestly, my world started falling apart. I had certain goals. I had dreams of what I wanted to achieve in life and where I wanted to go. I had in many ways, my life mapped out how I was going to achieve those goals. But everything started going wrong. And in desperation, I started looking for answers in many different places. And and one of the places I looked for answers was in the Word of God. For the first time in my life, I opened up the Word of God to look at it seriously. And I started in the New Testament. And it didn't take me long to get to Matthew chapter 6. And I came across verse 34. We didn't read that for you today. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Uh, Matthew 6, 33. But verse 34 
in, in a nutshell, says, don't worry about tomorrow. My whole life was wrapped up in college, my career, where I wanted to go, how I was going to get there, my goals, my desires, my wants. And so when I discovered verse 34, I went to my associate pastor, youth pastor, Pastor Chuck at my home church, and, and I told him my situation and what I was going through, and he said to me something like this, Daryl, what you need to look at and what all Christians need to look at is verse 33, the verse before it. He says, because the goal of every Christian is to find out what God wants for them, to put God first in their life, to seek His will and His plan and purpose in your life. And I obviously was not doing that. And so I put Matthew 6.33 into my mind and put it into my memory. And I began asking over and over again, Lord, what do you want me to do? What is your plan for my life? Well, during my second year of college, the Lord spoke to me on one Sunday morning as so clearly that it could have been an audible voice. I know exactly where I was sitting in Gospel Center Church. I'm back there where David Harley's at. He's the guy in the Clemson, well, one of the guys in a Clemson tie. Uh, I was sitting there with my friend Perry Gish who went to Purdue. He was home that weekend and, and we were sitting there and I have to admit we were doing anything but paying attention. But sometime during that service the Lord spoke to my heart in a voice that was as clear as could be and said to me something like this, that's supposed to be you up there preaching. It startled me. I told Perry, I couldn't let it go. I kept that in my mind. A few weeks later, on a Sunday evening, I was sitting also in church, and again, the Lord spoke to me as clearly as He did that Sunday morning. It's the same phrase, that's to be you up there preaching. And that was the beginning of my journey to study for the pastoral ministries. I stopped looking at the goals that I had in mind, what the plans I had been mapping out for myself, and I started asking God, give me your desires, your plan, and your purpose for my life. As we look at the verse, I want to break it down. It's, a, it's very simple and it's very straightforward uh, and it should be very clear to us. There's some phrases and terminology in here I want you to look at. We're going to look at, as this verse says, seek ye first. We're going to look at that word first. And then the kingdom of God, we're going to look at that. And, and righteousness, and what does that mean? And, and all these things shall be added unto you. We're going to look at that. So we start by looking at the word first. If you have your Bible out in front of you, and I trust that you do, take a pen, pencil, underline it, circle it, take it, highlight it. The word first. Because the word first means what is most important? What is foremost? What is top priority in life? And what it is saying when it talks about something being first, it says everything else is of lesser value. 
It doesn't mean it has no value or it isn't good. It's just of lesser value. It is not the most important thing. And so he is saying is here, our goal is in life is to seek God's plan for us and have it be number one. And for me, it was a call into ministry. I look around this room and I, I see uh, so many different professions uh, here. There's teachers, there's, there's builders, some that had to heartache to work for me. <laughs> Robert walked in. I, Robert, how long have we known each other? About 40 years. About 40 years. He said, walked in, hey boss. <laughs> uh, but anyhow, we have... We, but anyhow, we have builders, we have scientists, we have military personnel, we have people in the medical field, we have engineers, and, and to name a few. The Lord calls to different areas and different, gives different gifts and talents for those people. But first of all, we are to ask what God wants of us. And then he goes on and says, seek the kingdom of God. And so when we talk about the kingdom of God, what are we talking about? Well, if you were to look in Scripture, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven quite often are interchangeable. And God's kingdom is where He rules and where He reigns. And He reigns and rules out of heaven. And so at first importance for us as we look at this is that you and I need to be sure and confident that heaven is our eternal home. That your eternal destiny is settled. Not, I hope I'll get to heaven, or maybe I'll make heaven, but an assurance that you know that if you were to die today, heaven would be your eternal home. For me, that was settled when I was 10 years of age. I was in Bible school. I remember it very, again very clearly. I understood that I needed Christ as my Savior if heaven was going to be my home. I understood that I was a sinner and, and I couldn't save myself. And, and I, that day, June 18, 1958, I asked Jesus Christ into my life to be my Lord and Savior. The Bible is so clear. We're all born sinners. None of us have anything that we can offer the Lord. We stand literally condemned. Over in Romans chapter 3 verse 23 tells us we all have sinned. Verse 10 of that same chapter says none of us are righteous. Over in John's gospel, chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, says God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Again, so clear that none of us can earn salvation and the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. Over in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, a verse that many of you will, would know, for by grace you have been saved and through faith and it is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Now that verse becomes very offensive to many people. Because what that verse says to us is that nothing we can do can earn a salvation. No religion, no good works, no uh, human goodness can earn our way to heaven. But many people think they can. 
The writer of the Proverbs in chapter 14, verse 12 says, There is a way that seems right to man, but the end that leads to destruction. You were to ask people, do you know how to get to God? Well, some people will say, there's many roads to God. There's, There's many ways to get to God. And let me say something here, and don't misunderstand me. In a sense, they're correct. Because everybody's going to meet God at the judgment. Jesus Christ at the judgment. The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So all of us are going to meet God. But not all of us will be in heaven. To be in heaven, you have to go through the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way. In John chapter 14. Paul writing to the church at Rome. In chapter 10 verses 9 and 10. It says, but if you will confess with your mouth. Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart. That God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess. And are saved. So when we talk about God's kingdom. We're talking about heaven. Are you sure you're going there? Well, let's go a step further. There's another way in Scripture that talks about God's kingdom, and and it's personal. And by that I mean that His kingdom is within each and every Christian, each and every believer. That God rules my life, or should rule my life, let me put it that way. Because you see, that's where I missed it big time when I was 18, 19 years old. I remember reading a book in college called, Are You Running With Me, Jesus? And the author of that book, I know he meant well, but he missed it. Because he was saying, wherever you go, whatever you do, make sure you take Jesus with you. Now that's good advice. And that was me. My goals for my future were not bad goals. They weren't bad desires. They were not sinful things. But the fact was, they weren't what God had planned for me. And He is to be on my, in my heart on my throne. But my relationship with the Lord was not number one at that point in time. He wasn't out of my mind. I wasn't living in sin. I was at church as often as I could be. I love being in church. And as I told you, when He spoke to me, I was in church. I was actually teaching the fifth grade Sunday school class at that point in time in my home church. I wasn't out like a lot of my classmates in college, uh, partying hardy on Friday and Saturday night. Uh, I wasn't in an immoral relationship. I wasn't sleeping around with anyone. Uh, I had the desire that people, when they saw me, would see Jesus in me. That I would be a witness for Him. But you see, even though that was true in my life, Jesus wasn't number one. The greatest commandment in Scripture, as it reads in Luke chapter 10, verse 27, we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and with all of our mind. All that we are. He's to be number one. Our love for Him is to be that way. Now, I hate to say this, but this is true. Churches 
are full of people who attend once in a while, who come with no desire to know what God's saying to them, not serious about the relationship with Him. They come with their eyes closed and their ears shut and their minds and hearts hardened. If I can put words in His mouth, and if you don't like it, Lord, forgive me, what thrills Him more than anything is a heart that says, I desire to obey you. kingdom of God is heaven. The kingdom of God is to be our heart. And there's another area. The kingdom of God is the church. When you look at the church, the visible local church, you're looking at a picture of God's kingdom. It represents God's kingdom here on earth. The mission of the church is to be a witness in our world. It's to proclaim salvation through Christ alone. When one looks at the local church, it should be a place where Jesus is Lord, where He is in control. That he, the church is seeking to proclaim the truth around us. If you're sure that heaven's your home, you need to be obedient and be part of the local visible church. Now, I know people struggle with this. I'm not naive. I've heard all of the excuses. The church is full of hypocrites. Yes, it is. I'm sorry to say. You're right. I remember the story J. Vernon McGee told. Uh, he was pastoring out in Pasadena, California, and he had some business he needed to attend with, with one of the deacon, uh, elders in his church. He's Presbyterian. One of the elders in his church. And, and he had a business downtown. And, and so while Dr. McGee was downtown, he decided to drop in to this man's place of business. And he walked in. And, and as he walked in, he, he heard the most awful, profane language he'd ever heard in his life. And then he realized the voice was the man he needed to see. He quickly forgot the business he was going to talk with this man about and went up to him and he says, you got two choices. Sunday, you either repent or you resign from every position in the church and left. There are hypocrites in the church. I know it. I know that roast pastor is one of the main courses on Sunday noon dinners. I know that. I've had people tell me, well, preacher, there are just so many mean people in the church. Yep, we got them too. I want to tell you something about the mean people and tankerous and hard to get along with. Over the years, I've come to a conclusion that they're that way because God's dealing with them in some area of their life and they're not listening to them. They're fighting with God. And if you've ever been in a fight with God, it's not a pleasant place to be. And they're miserable because they're fighting God and they make everyone around them miserable. So what we need to do, those people that are cantankerous and mean in the church, we need to lift them up because God's dealing with them. Oh, I know the one, another one. You're going to fire me after this, aren't you? Uh, <laughs> all they talk about down there at the church is money. I want to tell you something about Cornerstone, those of you who are not members here. We are one of the most unique churches around. If you were to look at the financial statement from last year, 
our treasurer and associate treasurer are here, but the financial statement end of the year, 22% of everything that was given went out from the church here in ministries. We had the Lottie Moon offering. We talked about that today. I, I, I don't harp on it. I just remind people that we have this wonderful opportunity to give. Our church this year put 259 shoeboxes for Samaritan's Purse and sent them on and all the money that went into those and to send them. But we, we have, the Lord has done marvelous things here. I don't know another church our size that has two full-time staff members. Now, honestly, we don't get paid a lot, but we don't starve, do we, Steve? <laughs> and it shows. <laughs> and we, that happens because we have a body of believers that understands the gift of the tithe. We have a body of believers that understands that everything we have came from God as a gift to us. That I would have absolutely nothing if God didn't give it to me first. And to give it back to him in a tithe, or, or, or some people who really struggle with finances have a hard time even meeting a tithe. And I, I know the Lord understands. I told somebody one time, put $5 in the offering plate and say, Lord, thank you for taking care of me, if that's all you can do. But there's a person right next to him that can write a check for $500 and not bother him at all, and they'll praise God too. That's the kind of people we have here. All types and shapes and sizes. But we are a giving church and it's because we love the Lord and we know He gave it to us. And we can give it back to Him out of what He has given to us and give it to Him cheerfully as the New Testament says. Oh yes, and I know this one. Preacher, you preach too long and you're too boring. <laughs> you know, we have... I'm speaking for myself, nobody else, okay? I want to hit a home run every Sunday. Sometimes I settle for a, a single. And sadly, there are days I strike out. But the Lord taught me a wonderful lesson that is scriptural, that His Word does not come back void. When I had the privilege of pastoring up at Plum Branch, and we have a handful of members from Plum Branch here today, and I have permission to say this, but over on that wing... Second seat back against the wall was a man by the name of Bill Dorn. His widow is here this morning. Bill came in just about time to start, was a very quiet man, was one of the first ones out. Almost never said a word other than smile and shake my hand and go home. Well, one Sunday I struggled. It was to me the first sermon I ever preached and everybody else in the church might have thought it was. But when Bill left that day, he said to me, Preacher, best sermon you ever preached. And walked out. I learned a valuable lesson that time in my life. God uses His Word to speak to people of their needs on the days you think you're doing very well and on the days you struggle. I know the idea of music. We had a tremendous variety of music today. Most of the time when Steve does the music, those three songs that we sing relate together instead of being hodgepodge, and that's why he said I picked them out. <laughs> but I had a method in my madness, seriously, I had a method in my madness. We just came through the Christmas season, 
and tell me who here does not get thrilled listening to Handel's Messiah and specifically the Hallelujah Chorus. Old classical music, but man does it touch your heart. We sang Amazing Grace, a a traditional song that even unbelievers love to sing. We sang Majesty, and there are, and and you ought to have heard yourself sing. The choir can tell you later, and you might have been able to hear. When that song comes out, and you want to say Majesty, it wants to come from the bottom of your soul out to the tops of the rafters. There's just something about that simple chorus that just makes you want to celebrate our Lord. And then we went into Jesus. There's just something about that name. Much more reverent, quiet, but oh, does it speak to the heart again. And then I chose the song for the choir. We've sung it so many times, and I love it. And depending on what kind of mood I'm in, Sometimes I want to just get on my face and say, thank you, God. There's times and occasions when that happens. And there's other times I want to be a shouting Baptist. You know, it it just just depends on what's going on in my life. What I want to say about music, and I've learned this slowly over life, is any song that honors God, glorifies our Heavenly Father, sing it for all your worth. And when any song that emphasizes the beauty of the salvation we have in Jesus Christ, again, just sing it. Because I want to tell you something. As much as I enjoy listening to other people sing, and I was blessed by our friends and brother Steve this morning, as as you all were. But basically, when we sing, we sing to an audience of one. No one else. Our great God and Savior. And when it honors God and when it glorifies Him and it elevates this great salvation, we can sing it for all we're worth. Lois, I didn't ask you this, but I'm going to again use your dear husband, my brother. The story goes, and a couple of his children are here, that over at Grace Church, he was singing one Sunday, and one of the kids said to him, Dad, please stop singing so loud, you're making everybody sing off key. Now, if there's an angel in heaven that can go see him and tell him what I just said, he's probably saying, but you ought to hear me now. (laughs) If you're looking for the perfect church and you find it, please don't join it. You'll ruin it. (laughs) Every one of us is flawed. Every one of us is not perfect. We, we just don't make it. But you see, the, the local church is so necessary. It's a place where we do worship. And there's something beautiful about corporate worship. I, I'm having a grand time today. I hope you are. I do Sunday after Sunday. And there's something beautiful about it. And again, I've heard people say, Preacher, I can worship just as well out in nature as I can in church. Well, let me say this. I hope you worship God out in nature. I hope you see the beauty that He's created in nature and it reminds you of your great God. I've been picking on people here today on purpose. We've got three people here that I know came from Beckley, West Virginia. So 
Don't shout too loud, please. <laughs> but a year and a half ago, Dinah and I were heading to Ohio for a wedding. And we stopped for the night in Beckley, West Virginia. And the next morning, we took off heading up to, again into Ohio. And, and, and that early morning, the, the sun was coming up. There was a haze over the mountains. And as I said, it was early May. It was a beautiful day. And as the sun was burning off that haze, I'm, I'm looking out all around me on these beautiful, majestic mountains. And there must have been 50 dozen different colors of green as they were, the leaves were, leaves were coming out and, and the beauty was there. And, and I, I just gave out a shout. It was so beautiful. You worship, you can worship God in nature because He created it. And it was so beautiful to see that. Yes, worship God in His beautiful nature. Because it reminds us of Him. But I tell you again, where our focus is upon our Lord and Savior. And you take that time to lift your voice in praise. To get into the Word of God and to be challenged from the Word in your walk with the Lord. The early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. Acts chapter 2 verse 42 tells us. Church is necessary for fellowship. We gather together to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ. We share life with each other. The church I was raised in back in South Bend, Indiana was known as Gospel Center Missionary Church. And we had a Wednesday night service unlike any I've ever been in before. We would come together for an, about a half hour of Bible study. And then we would break up into groups, uh, usually by age, uh, for about a half hour of prayer, and then we would come back into the service and have a testimony meeting. And I remember one night, one lady stood up and gave testimony, and she said, I, I just love coming back on Wednesday night. I have to be here because I need to get my batteries recharged to meet the demands of the rest of the week. There's something special about our fellowshipping with one another. It's a place where we share our burdens where we have prayer partners. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 talks about we are to restore a brother that has fallen into sin. And that's what the church is to do. We are to gather around a brother or sister who is struggling with an issue. We are to put our arms around them and let them know we love them and that we're praying for them and that we're there for them in their times of need. Chapter, verse 2 of chapter 6 there in Galatians says we are to carry each other's burdens. And then of course... The goal of the church is missions and evangelism. That great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We do it so much better as a unit than we do individually. That's one of the beauties of the cooperative program within the Southern Baptist Convention where churches get together and they pool their money uh, so that it can support missions and support uh, colleges and seminaries and, and, and other institutions in, in the state where we couldn't do that individually anywhere near as well as we do together. And the same way within the church. You, you know when Paul went, you look at Paul's letters, always had a companion with him, or more. There was Luke, and there was Barnabas, and there was Apollos, and there was Timothy and Silas. He had somebody with him all the time. He didn't go out there alone. 
A church is a place where you're to use your human talents and your spiritual gifts. He's given all of us something to serve Him in the church. Then we build up the church. Let me ask you a question. Do you go to church to be ministered to or to minister? Let me put it another way. Do you go to church to be blessed or to be a blessing? Do I have to choose preacher? Well, no. Because in a way it's both. We were blessed by the special music today. We were blessed by such a grand showing of friends and family. But yet in return, we are to bless another person. Paul over in Romans chapter 1 verse 12 And this comes from the Living Translation. It speaks so clearly. He says, when we get together, I want to encourage you in your faith, but I also want to be encouraged by yours. Paul was saying, when I come to the church at Rome, I I want to come there so that I can minister to you and I can preach the word to you and that you can be encouraged in your life. But in return, you do the same to me. You see, we as pastors need encouragement. My number one cheerleader is sitting right back here. I can't see, but, but if I got more than one back there, I'll take it. But we are to use the gifts that our God has given us in ministry through the local church. The church is God's, is the Lord Jesus Christ's idea. He said, Over in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I will build my church. So if you got a problem, if you have a problem with the local church, you have to take it up with the Lord Jesus. Because the church is His idea. He created it so that we can serve Him, that we can worship Him, that we can minister to others, and we can share the gospel better than we could all by ourselves. Quite honestly, it's time that some people stop with their excuses And get to a very Bible-believing, Christ-centered church. Get involved. And use what the Lord's given you. Well, as we go on, he says also of first importance is his righteousness. How do we look at righteousness? Well, there's two ways here I want to bring out to you. One is called the imputed righteousness. And what that means in simple terms is that when I became a Christian, or when you became a Christian, the Lord Jesus took my sins upon Himself, and He gives me His righteousness. And so God the Father looks at us through the cross and the blood of Jesus, and believe it or not, He sees Daryl Engel as perfect, holy. That's a... That's a beautiful thing, folks. The Bible tells us over in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, that our righteousness or our righteous acts are nothing but filthy rags. In trying to please God or trying to satisfy God, things that we do are no better than stinking rags. There's a beautiful, beautiful reality that we have in knowing that 
Though our God sees me and sees every Christian as truly righteous and truly holy. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, there's also a practical righteousness that I want to talk about for a few minutes before we close. Simply stated, that means if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he expects us to live a godly, holy life. We've already been declared righteous in the Father's sight because of our faith in Christ, but we have been commanded to live a life in this world in such a way that people see Jesus in us. One of the speakers at the state convention this past year made a statement something like this. Way too many members of the church look like the world, act like the world, dress like the world, think like the world, talk like the world, and live like the world. It's because they're the world. When we receive Christ as Savior, something happens inside our lives. We are to be conformed to the image of Christ or the likeness of Christ, or Romans 8, 29. The habits and practices of the world are foreign to a Christian. We looked at that just recently in our studies. Christians are just the opposite of the world. Paul, writing... To the church at Corinth. Chapter 6 verses 9 through 11. He says. Do you not know. That the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral. Or idolaters or adulterers. Or male prostitutes. Nor homosexual offenders. Nor thieves. Nor greedy. Nor drunkards. Nor slanders. Nor swindlers. Will inherit the kingdom of God. But listen to this next statement. But that is what some of you were. If you're saved today, you were something. In Bible study just recently, Bill Aiden was given testimony and we were talking about being born again out of study of John's gospel. And Bill made the statement that I was saved as an adult. I think he said he was in his 50s. He can correct me in a minute if uh, he chooses to. But he said, for my life, when I received Christ, everything changed. He said it was like, today I was going this direction. I got saved and I made a 180 degree turn and now I'm going that direction. His life was radically changed when he met Jesus Christ. I know for myself as a 10 year old boy, I was ill-tempered, and I was a little snot. I was a brat. And that was taken from me the, the day I trusted Christ as Savior. I can give you the same testimony, a similar testimony of my own dear father. My dad was saved. Uh, my, both my parents were saved when I was roughly five years of age. My father, before he was saved, had a problem with alcohol and tobacco. In fact, alcohol ruled him. 
And he went to that altar at Gospel Center Church that, that day and received Christ as Savior. And when he got up from that altar, the desire to have an alcoholic drink was gone. And for the last 50 years of his life, he never touched one again. He called it the devil's drink because it about ruined him personally and destroyed his marriage. There's a reason you call it words like that. And anybody who fools around with alcohol and thinks they can get by with it, there's a number of folks in this building today can tell you that God delivered them from alcohol. Not only my dad, but others in this building. There is that radical change. We change dramatically. We become new creations as the scriptures talk about it. Yes, we are not perfect. And quite honestly, we as Christians walk in repentance every day because every day we fail. There are things that happen every day in my life that I have to say, Lord, forgive me for that. And please help me never to go there again. I know somebody's going to say, Preacher, I'm a good person. And I bet you are. Over the years, I've had a number of people who were good employees. I've had good neighbors. I'm glad of that. But since the Bible tells us we are all sinners, the qualifications for heaven is not being good. In fact, I'm going to say this. I think the biggest tragedy of hell is it's going to be full of good people. They never thought they needed Jesus. They thought their religion was good enough. They thought that their good works was good enough. They thought the fact that they were a good husband or a good wife or a good neighbor, a good citizen, whatever you want to put there was enough to get them to heaven. But to get to heaven, you need Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now, I need to finish this. The last thing that's mentioned is these things. All these things will be added to you. I had gold to provide for myself, what I was going to do. But what the scriptures tell us here is that when you seek God first, He will give you what you need to pay the bills. Does it mean I'm going to be rich? Possibly not. It might be that you'll end up being more rich. There's, there's a, but He will provide your needs. You go back into chapter 6. Uh, over and over again, he talks about how the Lord provides. Verse 31 basically says he's going to provide what you need to eat, what you need to drink, what you need to wear, and the shelter you need. He will take care of those needs if you put him number one. My reality at that time was to do what Daryl wanted to do. He needed me to put him first. My question for you today as we conclude this, did you see yourself somewhere in here today? Are you one who is gambling that your good works are going to get you into heaven? That being a good person is going to be all you need? You see, again, we have two choices, heaven or hell. Greg Lowry made a statement the other day. He says, for the person who chooses to go to hell... You'll have to jump over my dead body. And he says, because Christ died for you. There are some in this room today that need to turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. You know it. The Spirit of God has been speaking to your heart about it.
There are some in this room today that need to put Christ first in your goals and in your future. Now ask Him what you need to do, what He wants you to do, about your employment, about, seriously, a new vehicle, what kind, job to take, where to move, who to date, all those things, what school to go to, all those things are to be asked, Lord, what do you want of me? Where do you want me to go? There's some in this room that need to start using your talents and your gifts in the local church. You need to display Jesus Christ in your life and to live a life of purity, of holiness, and righteousness. The invitation is quite broad today. I'm going to make it simple. If the Lord has spoken to you about any need, Today is the best day of your life to get it settled. If you don't know Christ as Savior, you need to walk this aisle. You can speak to me, and I'll pray with you. you Pastor Steve, if, if need be, uh, would be fine, or, or any one of godly individuals in this church. If you need to come, kneel at this altar and ask the Lord to forgive you and to fresh, make His will and desire for your life fresh and new in your life. The altar is always open. Do what the Spirit of God is asking you to do. Start the new year fresh with a commitment to serve Christ with all that you are, with all that you have. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to say thank you again for these few minutes we have together here. I thank you for your wonderful word, and I thank you for the privilege of serving you here at Cornerstone. You've been so good and gracious to us. Thank you. I ask for your hand upon the days ahead. Uh, open up doors of opportunity that this church family can only dream of right now. Maybe not even on their mind because you're the great miracle worker. And Lord, I just ask you to speak to hearts and give them the courage to stand up right now today and to say today is the day I choose Jesus. For we pray it in his precious name. Amen. Shall we stand? Hymn number 478. Have you any room for Jesus? He who bore your load of sin. As he knocks and asks admission.